What about you? Welcome to February 2024's edition of Here's the Thing, a podcast that's basically just an honest natter about mental health. Want to start with a very exciting announcement, some brilliant news for the pod. We are delighted, honoured and blown away to be able to announce Wallace's Menswear and Antrim as our 2024 sponsor. My old boss, Peter Stevenson, contacted me over Christmas to say he would love to be our sponsor and we could not be more ecstatic. My family and Wallace's menswear go way back. This is where we all got our school uniforms growing up. My bro worked there and I worked there was a, and when I was at uni. One of the best things about working in Wallace's was our tea break every morning. Peter used to send me over to the bakery with a few quid in my pocket to get whatever cream bun we wanted from the bakery. So as part of our partnership with Wallace's menswear, I have another exciting announcement. Part of their sponsorship of the pod, if you head down to Antrim and go to Wallace's menswear, go to the till. And when you're paying for your stuff, mention Here's the Thing podcast, you'll get yourself a tidy wee 10% off your bill. Peter and the Walsh's team, thank you. I'm genuinely excited to introduce po- February's podcast guest. Young people in particular, when you get to my age of 39, you'll realise there's a lot of crap on the internet. A lot of voices, a lot of Insta opinions. But the guy I'm going to introduce this month is one of my favourite people to see a story pop up on Instagram. He's gold. What he has to say is relevant, it's wise, it's practical, and it's counsel that is so easily applicable and transferable directly into my life. I'm buzzing to be able to introduce anxiety and OCD therapist Mr. Paul McCarroll to the podcast. Paul, who's been speaking on a few podcasts of late. Welcome, sir. Stephen, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Paul, I'll have to start with the usual way I start a podcast. Let me grill you with a few random questions to give us a wee bit of a flavour of who you are, Paul. What's your favourite fizzy drink? got to be Coca-Cola for me. Stephen, I know it's quite funny. I'm sitting here with Lucas. I here, a different brand of fizzy drink, but got to be the real full sugar, full fat Coca-Cola. Lucas Aid says to me, unless I'm reading into it too much, you've had a long day. Is that, <laughs> is that right? Lucas Aid says that it's fizzy and I want to at least make the most of this good opportunity that I have with you. So, so yeah. You tell me this. If I had the power to give you coffee with any celebrity in the world, who would you choose and why? Oh, that's a great question, Stephen. Um, I suppose the first person that comes to mind is somebody, uh, somebody who I have actually, Leonardo DiCaprio was the first person that came to mind. Um, he actually, I've always enjoyed his acting career and the work that he does um he was featured in the film which a lot of people don't know about it was about 20 years ago won a lot of oscar awards the aviator um, and basically it's about the story of howard hughes who struggled with at the time undiagnosed obsessive compulsive disorder ocd basically the father of, of aviation um, and also was a back in the day a bit of a playboy had dates with all the sort of celebrity woman back in the day, but really, really struggled with OCD to the point that, that sort of the end of him, really. Um, but he plays the role so well. Um, and I'd, I've always followed Leonardo DiCaprio's career. Um, funny story about that. Stephen, you can agree or disagree with this one, but certain Brendan Fraser, the guy who used to do the Mummy movies, was in Belfast filming, I don't know what he was filming, but he was here about 10 years ago. Um, Jukes at Queen's, in Botanic, where they do the sort of lovely Sunday carvery. I was there with uh, an ex-partner of mine. I was talking to him at the end, and he said, you look a lot like Leo, Marv. And I said, Leo who? He said, Leo DiCaprio. And wow. if I had more hair, a bit more tan, possibly. Um, but yeah, Leo DiCaprio, ironically, my, my son's called Leo. So that's All is my promise to you when the pod's over tonight, I'll send him a DM and see if he gets back to me, right? See if I can maybe get an interview with them or have a cup of coffee with them. Paul, tell me this. Do you say yogurt or yogurt? Yogurt? I say yogurt. I think, to be honest, when you first said it, I said it could be said anyway, but... Who do you think would win in a fight? Buzz from Toy Story or Woody? So funny. I I can see that even in my mantelpiece in my house in Belfast. My son enjoys the Toy Story characters and they're there. Buzz, I think. I think Buzz. We'd sort of fly down and maybe just we'd win. Okay, Woody all the way. By the way, do you know? I just need to tell the listeners that Paul's a big Nottingham Forest and Celtic fan, so I'm just going to say Nottingham Forest for some reason they're in the Champions League final. Yes, I know. I know they won a European Cup before. Two European Cups. Two. Two. Yeah. 
So you're in a Champions League final, Nottingham Forest are in a Champions League final, and you're number nine, and you get a penalty in the 89th minute. Are you placing it, blasting it, or would you try a wee Penenka? Trying to blast it into the top corner. Blast it. Because I think I'd rather, I'd rather miss it, and it goes flying into the crowd, than a penalty that you try and clearly pass into the net. You know, I'd rather go out with a bang. Hopefully... I thought this was a pretty good question. Some people give my questions a bit of stick because they're all really surrounding food, to be honest. They came up with this one. Would you rather be a contestant on Strictly, I'm a Celebrity, or X Factor? Actually, the better question, which would you have a better chance of winning? Strictly, I'm a Celebrity, or X Factor? I like the belt out of each tune, and again, I don't know if I'm actually in tune. I'd give X Factor a go, like... Okay. Try and belt out the odd wee thing now and again. I don't think I'm much of a singer, but of them all, that's probably the one at least have a chance of doing reasonably well at. Okay. We'll look into that now. Paul, let's talk about you. Can you tell us, tell our listeners where you grew up? Tell us about your family. And just a pretty open question. Did you enjoy school? So, Stephen, like yourself, I'm originally from Antrim. Um, I'm... 37 now. I am from a family of four. I have an older brother and an older sister, a younger sister also. Um, mother and father, Mary and Vince, who been great loving parents over the years. And um, as I say, generally up until my teenage years, I mean, I had a good life. And still, of course, to this day, I mean, I still would say I have a good life, but obviously I hit some challenges in, in teenage years. Um Primary school went well, lots of friends, really enjoyed the school, really enjoyed the extracurricular stuff. It was secondary school, which I found a bit more challenging, um, probably just slightly down to me because I'm someone who puts, even to this day, puts a lot of pressure on myself and trying to succeed and do well, but probably at the time put too much pressure on myself and also in hindsight, only hindsight, I can see it now, I was Developing a wee bit of sort of mental health issues as well. Um, so up until my teenage years, things in Antrim generally went pretty well. You know, we're, we're blessed here, as you know, with beautiful castle gardens and the Loch Shore. And um, there's, there's, I've made many friends over the years. And, but as I say, I suppose how I've came to really be here, sitting with you tonight, being on this podcast, sort of big, the initial challenge began in my sort of teenage years. One of the things I like to hope by my life, Paul, is wherever I go in life that I might be some sort of a role model to a teenager. And I, I like asking teenagers, especially in school, who who's your role model? Because I had so many growing up, and I don't necessarily just mean Stevie Gerrard. I mean youth workers from the town, BB leaders, friends of mine who were just older who I looked to. So I'm always keen to ask people when you're, when you're chatting about your teenage life and you're you're almost saying there it got a wee bit tricky at times. Can you can you name not even necessarily celebs, but people you could actually see and talk to? Can you name name a role model or two? Yeah, I mean, don't mean to sound sort of airy fairy, but I mean, I suppose when I look back at that particular struggle in my life, it was my own mother and father, were incredibly supportive and. As we'll go into, what I struggled with was was OCD, which is basically having intrusive thoughts, and generally the thoughts aren't of a very nice nature. And understandably, 20 years ago, as you know, mental health wasn't really talked about the way it was now, and at the time I just thought I was going crazy. I just thought I was losing my mind. And But when I spoke to my mum and dad, how difficult even that was at the time, they were understanding, they were supportive, and they'd done everything in their power to get the support that I needed. But also, they would probably appreciate and say they didn't know an awful lot about mental health, but they did everything they could just by giving an empathetic ear, just by trying to be understanding, trying to be there for me, I suppose, as any good parent try to do. But it was nice to at least be able to have parents that I could talk to and actually offload with. So they were the first people that came to mind. As you said that, um, and obviously still to this day, they're a great support in many ways. 
correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, when I go on your Insta page and I read that you're an OCD and anxiety therapist, my assumption before inviting you on the podcast is this guy has obviously battled, and you've alluded a wee bit to that, you've battled with OCD and anxiety yourself or someone close to you have. So let me just, the widest question you're going to get all night, start wherever you want, tell us your story. When did you start to struggle with these things? Where you went from then? And it's not too big a question. How did you end up being somebody who speaks then daily to people who struggle with OCD and anxiety? So start wherever you want to start. I suppose I'll start where nearly I left off is where, you know, things became difficult for me in my teenage years and, um, I attended a school which was very positive in many ways, but and 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 it was, in my opinion, quite negative at times in the, the academic sort of rigor that was put on students. And I personally found that quite difficult to deal with. And whether it was stress, whether it was a bit of sort of burnout on top of things, I also, in hindsight, was developing a bit of mental health challenges. And um, those being, what's called intrusive thoughts, and for your listeners viewers who don't really know what an intrusive thought is, the best way to put that in layman's terms, it's an unwanted thought. It's a thought which is shown up against your will. And it's usually of a very sort of, not a very nice variety. Um, the thought that was generally shown up for me was that something terribly bad could happen to a family member. And the only way to prevent that was by doing certain rituals. So that's basically what we mean by obsessive compulsive disorder. So you have the obsession, you have this difficult thought which produces this feeling of anxiety. And to alleviate the feeling of anxiety, you do some sort of behavior, you know. Um, for me, I had this issue with numbers. And I was like, the volume's on number nine. Something bad's going to happen to mom. And I would then put it up to ten. If I was in the shower, I had to be in the shower for a certain period of time. Um, it just... The thing with OCD, as we'll get into it, starts off very small, very innocuous. You do these things to keep it at bay, but your short-term things that you do actually become this, it turns into this huge big spider web where your whole life becomes about keeping OCD at bay. Yes. So in my teenage years, when that began, I ended up coming out of school, not seeing friends, not socialising, developed a bit of depression too. So... At 15 years of age, that was at a very low end, you know. Had this problem only knowing now, obviously, of course, in the work that I do, but I didn't know what was going on with me. Um, and as I say, it, things deteriorated to then hospitalisation when I was 17. Um, and ironically, which we might get into, I spent eight weeks in the hospital where I now do some work, actually. So I, I suppose that's... There's a message of hope in there that whoever's listening, whoever's watching, that no matter how dark it gets, you can turn it around. You can get to a better place. It doesn't happen overnight. There's no just magic cure, but you can get to a place where actually I can get my life back. I can go out there. I can make a difference. And so that's a, a little snapshot, I suppose, of how... When, when the intrusive thoughts started... You and I are going to say now, sitting at 37 and 39, the first thing you got to do is go and tell someone. Did you know that you had to go and tell someone or was this something that spiraled away in your mind for a long time before you actually reached the stage? Because it's easy for us to say, I, I have my own mental health podcast and you're a therapist. Young people may be listening and go, it's, it's easy for you guys to say, go and speak to somebody. But when I have a thought, X, Y and Z, which isn't normal, so to speak, how long did you wait before you told somebody I'm having these thoughts and then actually told somebody what the thoughts were? How long did you wait? Or were you wise enough to know to go and tell somebody pretty pretty soon? And, and I think it's, it's a really great question and I would love to say that actually, you know what, I went and spoke there and then I didn't. I didn't because, as I said, I was very afraid of the thoughts I was having. I was afraid, even as I said, as supportive as my mother and father were, even at that time, there was a wee bit of judge me. They're not gonna gonna be like, why is he thinking that way? What's wrong with him? So probably it 
it took a long time for me to, to sort of speak about it. I would say at least a year. And at that time, I then dropped out of school. My mental health deteriorated. Depression got involved. Um, so I, ironically, um, one of the big pieces of research, public health agency, obviously you're talking President Day, they you may have heard of Five Ways to Wellbeing, pretty much everywhere nowadays, on park benches, if you went to Butch Chemist, if you, it's very much everywhere. And one of the big uh, sort of components of that is this idea of connection. And pretty much, might sound cliche, but a problem shared really is a problem. And if you can get whatever's on your chest off of your chest, there's just that wee bit of relief. Of course, my caveat and that would be do it to someone you trust. Do it to someone who cares about you and your well-being is going to keep it confidential. But I think the most important thing, whoever's listening, if you're struggling, if you can, speak to someone. And also to recognize that you're not alone because when I was feeling this way, I felt alone. I felt isolated. I felt... And it's only when doing this work and with the clients I see, both locally and internationally, we might have different colour skin, we might have different beliefs, but a lot of us struggle with the same stuff. And it's more, how then can we learn it's this that it doesn't become almost the... Like from when, when OCD gets very loud with people, that's what their life becomes. They don't work. They don't socialise. They Their life becomes OCD. So... I know you deal with OCD and anxiety. I probably have limited experience with OCD, but I did have an episode, a season in my life where intrusive thoughts came to me and I got some help. But I mean, I don't mind sharing. I've never told anyone this apart from my own therapist. But I used to... I was driving down a country road and I met you and I had to go up a wee bit on the grass outside somebody's house. I would drive on and think to myself, I've left a tire track. And I there was a stage in my life where I would have called at the door. I've done it. And 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 anybody listening's probably thinking, What what are yeah. you doing? But I went, I'm I mean, I'm knocking the door at maybe twenty two, twenty three and I'm going, Hi. I met a tractor there. And I had to go up in the grass outside your door. And it happened three or four times to me. And every single time the person at the door obviously didn't go, I'll send you an invoice for the mark. They'll go, oh, man, that, ha- that happens all the time. Um, I also worked in a coffee shop. That's how maybe you and I know each other. And I went through a period of time where I would have set a cup down at a table. And if there was a mark already on the table, I convinced myself I made the mark. And go, and I mean, I'm going to a supervisor as an employee. I'm going high poly room supervisor. I was on my break there. I set my Americano down and I've actually marked the table. And they're going, shut up, Steve. And and every time those sort of, call it fake confessions, made me feel better. But as I, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir here. This is your word. When I spoke to my therapist and he said to me, every time you follow one of those voices, every time you give in to that kind of knock on the door, like we've got to do some work on you not confessing for the mark you didn't make on the table. And I got a lot of help. I actually feel a bit emotional when I'm talking about this, but there was a period of time where I was genuinely scared to sit across the table from a mate Handy or Karen and go, can I, can I chat to you? How's your week been? Well, I made a mark on the table there last Tuesday. And I just felt so terrified because there was this almost this bullying voice that was controlling my life that was making me say sorry for things that it didn't do. And if it did happen to make a mark on a table in a coffee shop, then I obviously didn't mean to do it. I wasn't sitting scoring my cup. But I, but I mean, that's my, that's my experience. And I've heard a little bit about what you... I'm really grateful that I can say I got help and got out of it, but it was a really embarrassing, disarming, isolating, terrifying experience. It was almost like I, I come in, I'm Paul, I'm using paper cups in coffee shops. I'm nearly clipping cars on country roads because I don't want to go up on the grass. And, that, and what a useful example, Stephen, this year, and I appreciate, 
I was maybe one of the first times you actually share that, but it was really useful in the fact that he explained what people I work with and what I've experienced incredibly well. So generally when people do the thing, like they use the paper cup or they park the car in a bit more inconvenient place than they would actually like, they get what's called short-term relief. You feel better in the moment. But in the long term, you're creating problems for yourself where actually I would prefer to be using that nice cup in that coffee shop instead of using their takeaway variety to save me from potentially causing harm. Um, as I've said, I work with people both locally and internationally and the, the range of thoughts that people struggle with. And generally the thing to remember if for your listeners and watchers that these thoughts are generally incongruent of who you are as a person. In other words, they're actually opposite of the things you care about. I could work with an incredibly loving, caring mother or father and they could be having intrusive thoughts that they could somehow, with their vegetable life, while they're cutting up the vegetables, somehow harm a child. Now, they will come to me in immense distress because that's the last thing they ever want to do. But the problem is, and that's, I suppose, where I begin working with people, is they're seeing that particular thought as absolute truth as opposed to seeing the thought as, well, actually, this is just a thought and I have a choice what I actually do with it. So sometimes people will, in that particular example, they may have no knives in the house, they just have blunt knives. When it comes to making dinner, send the partner in to do it. So over time, they're actually making that thought bigger and it's having more impact on their life. And how I try and help clients over time is, used a very nice word, sort of disarm. It's almost like, I can't make those thoughts go away. As I've shared before, it's a little thought experiment that you can you can do. I mean, if I say to you, you know, I do not think about a red Ferrari. In fact, Stephen, you're smiling here. I've had smiles with the, these lovely people in the room here who are filming. Some resemblance of a red Ferrari showed up in your mind. Right? So what that means is that each and every one of us in life, we try not to think about the difficult, hard stuff. It's normal natural thing that humans do but actually sometimes we think about the thing more so in my instance 37 years of age I still get unwanted thoughts but the difference is I don't try and get rid of them anymore I don't try and push them away but what I do do is I learn to let them be like a radio in the background that they can play they can be on the radio they can you know they can be coming out the tannoy in your local shopping centre or mall if you have American listeners. But I choose whether I listen to them or not. You know? And most people, when they work with me, when they come back, but that's some of the things they'll say is like, Paul, this mightn't ever go away completely. But it's no longer in the driving seat. I can now work again. I can go back to school. can socialise with my friends. Maybe your teenage listeners, they can maybe go out on a Friday and go to the cinema or go bowling. Their life is no longer a cul-de-sac. Their life isn't just about this. It's about, okay, there's other things than anxiety, other things than OCD. So it's more about minimising this issue as opposed to making it go away completely. And some people I work with, some listeners might even say, oh, does this mean I have to live with it? But for me, it's more, no, it's all about putting up with it but it is about learning to live with it in a way that it's not. So <clears throat> I know I have little experience of OCD. I think I probably got, well, I definitely have more experience with anxiety, Paul, and I want to chat to you about anxiety in particular. <clears throat> I, again, I'm a little bit emotional saying this, but I'm 39 and I would say up until recently, anxiety's ruined big chunks of my life big chunks of my life and I I've got help but I don't want my life to sound like a Disney movie as in I've got help and I don't struggle that anymore just what you said about OCD like I still battle anxiety I would like to think it's not the big bully anymore but there's so many holidays so many work days so many fun things that I've been doing that anxiety is just infected and stained and bullied and because I'm getting help and I've got help I'm very very burdened for people who are listening to our podcast right now in the towns and cities 
around Northern Ireland and he ever listens who just bullied with anxiety right now. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to cope. They can't get help. They're scared to get help. They can't afford a therapist. They don't know what a coping strategy is. Even when I say the phrase coping strategy, you think, whatever, I, I just let it bully me. It pounds me then daily and hopefully it stops pounding. So I'm not an I'm not a anxiety therapist, but I just feel like I've done a lot of mileage in terms of my own anxiety. So can you can you tell us a little bit first of all before you became an anxiety therapist? Would you have said you're Would you have said you've always battled anxiety? Did the anxiety come from the OCD? I know maybe you're going to tell me they're cousins or brothers or sisters or somehow related, but can you can you tell us? your own experience of anxiety, how you move through it, and how then you've reached the stage where actually talking to people who are anxious and helping them. Great question. And I would say OCD and anxiety, they're sort of from the same sort of family. I'll get into that, I suppose, shortly. But I'll bring it back to even um, sort of when I, when I was eight weeks in a, in a psychiatric hospital and when I got out at 17 years of age, got out, choice of the wrong word, discharged. Um, I had no qualifications to my name. So that was an anxiety-provoking place to be in and of itself. Um, and it was, for my opinion, it was through no fault of my own. But one thing I had within me and still within me to this day was this sort of burning desire to do something with my life, this burning desire that when I got, when I was starting to get well again, I sort of seen there was a real hole in terms of mental health advocates, there was a real hole in terms of like, what can people do to keep themselves well? You know, partly because it wasn't talked about. You know, so I, I, and I don't use this term lightly, but I mean, it's a play on words, but I then became almost a bit of a self-help junkie. In other words, and maybe you can resonate with this, Stephen, I was looking for all the, you know, whether it was trawling water stones in Belfast, that sort of top floor, like I was looking through all the self-help material there was. I was looking for the, the best medication to be on, what's the best sort of self-help stuff, whether it was exercise, and we'll get into some of this. But at the time, there wasn't as much information then as there was now. And initially, anxiety was very hard to manage. It was very hard to work with. and But thankfully, through through my own sort of investigation, I suppose, under the umbrella being education, I began to see that this was something that could be managed, this was something that could be worked with. And part of it was recognising that there's a part of anxiety which is normal and healthy. If you were in one of the local bars and walking home and it was a sort of late night and there's a few shady characters walking towards you, you don't have something within you saying, it's good they go the other way that fight or flight thing doesn't kick in well maybe you're not around tomorrow to tell the tale you know or maybe you're crossing the road and if something kicks in here there's a 40 foot tom lorry coming towards me I better not step across the road now I better wait that it passes there's a part of anxiety which has evolved from that place to try and keep you alive you know but the problem is nowadays it's I mean, there's no saber-toothed tigers running around that I know of, but there is, like, things aren't going well in this relationship. Can I lose my job? What if I don't get a job? Or what is my career going to look like? Or is this anxiety ever going to go away? Or Anxiety then becomes this problem. So it starts from a healthy place, but it gets to this position in life where it becomes really, really problematic. So... I've wore the anxiety t-shirt for a long time, Stephen. I know what it's like and really in my sort of description of OCD, it's sort of when you have this intrusive thought, whatever the content is, whether it's I drive my car, I could bash into the person in front of me or whether it's I need to check that stove so many times. Whatever your particular theme is, the reason why you have to do some sort of ritual is because you're feeling anxious. This almost overwhelming feeling of anxiety and when you do the ritual you feel a bit better but the problem is it's only short term and you have to do it again so for me anxiety is no longer the enemy 
you know, and that's, that's something I would say is that probably for a lot of your listeners, anxiety feels overwhelming and maybe people are like, oh, well, he doesn't know what it feels like. Well, the truth is I do. I've been there. I've wore the t-shirt. The difference is now it hasn't gone away, but I've got a different relationship to it. And I think that's the place that you can help people to get to. And by the sound of it, Stephen, that's the place where you're at. It's robbed a lot of your life. But the Stephen I know is still able to go and watch his football matches and work and do an amazing podcast and socialise and be active on social media. So it's part of your life. It's no longer all of it. Do you know, one of my biggest discoveries about myself in the last decade is that I spend, I have spent a large part of my life trying to hide the fact that I'm an anxious person. Like if you looked at my nails or you watched me pacing up and down before an event's going to happen, even before a holiday, before a football match, before someone picks me up at the house regarding time. And actually one of the, one of the biggest discoveries I had with my therapist was that I like I don't need to go around and go, hi, Paul, I'm Steve, I'm anxious. But I spend a lot of time in groups trying to prove to the world, be it in school, be it in a social life, a football, wherever I am on a podcast, that I'm not nervous, I'm chilled. I just walked in here, Paul. I didn't read any notes. I'm chill. I didn't think, what if, like, what if my voice squeaks on tonight? What if I forget what I'm going to say to Paul? What if the sound doesn't work? What if Karen's camera breaks? What if... Nobody turns up. What if some? What if there's snow tonight and we have to call it off and we've got no podcast for February? Like I, I spent a large part of my life hiding that, and I think I actually had to look my therapist in the eye and go, "I am an anxious person, and I would like help with this voice in my head that says to me about every event, even the most enjoyable that don't involve that many stresses. What if? What if? What if? What if?" And I think having a podcast and, and trying to advocate on behalf of mental health, one of the most freeing things I've ever done is say, I struggle with anxiety. I battle it. I haven't beaten him. I manage him. He doesn't get the he doesn't get the microphone all the time. Sometimes he does. But he, he doesn't dictate to me when I'm going to Olympic match everything that could go wrong anymore or I would say 10 years ago I would have pretend, pretended suppressed that and and acted to every even people that are close to me I would always say go for coffee with somebody and not say to them even though I wanted to say to, to Handy in Starbucks here bro like I'm really struggling with anxiety I would have I would have got anxious about telling somebody that I'm anxious so it's pretty freeing from my perspective to say I struggle with an anxiety. So Paul, one of the reasons why I wanted you to come on the podcast was because I I find your reels so practical. I find that I listen to them and automatically have something that's applicable to my story, my struggle, my battle. So, I want to ask you some practical questions. So, can you take us through the process as to what you would advise someone who's feeling overcome with anxiety? Where would you get them to start? Well, first of all, thank you, Stephen, for coming about the reel, and I think that's I have some friends who watch the reel and go like, you walking around that Luxor again? Are you a normal park in Belfast again? They're joking with the jag. They know the reason I do it is I'm a great believer in, even when I work with a client, I'm less interested in that you feel good after. I'm more interested in what have I taught you or what have you learned yourself? Probably more importantly, that can make a difference in your in your everyday life. And I think... First of all, when I'm working with someone, I'll try and help them see that, you know, it's not their fault for feeling anxious. That, as we discussed, there's a part of anxiety which is very normal. You know, if you have an exam coming up and you're at school and it's a couple of days before 
and you haven't done any revision and a thought says to you, better get the books out, that's helpful. Pay attention to that thought. That thought will help you to at least try and pass the exam, you know? But sometimes the thoughts that show up in our mind aren't very useful, like, what if I can't get into the university I want to? Or what if mum dies? Or what if I don't get better from this? Those thoughts aren't very useful. So it's recognising that sometimes anxiety is coming from this healthy place of you want to succeed, you want to do well, you don't want things to go wrong. But it's also recognising that when anxiety is getting too big, getting too loud, is as you said, what can we do to put it back in its place? You know, and obviously the hope is that those are, there's a lot of things that you can do yourself. Of course, and I'm sure you'll mention probably in the podcast, there are the things of the likes of your your GP, there is the likes of Samaritan's Lifeline, there are those things that if you feel really in crisis mode, to avail of. But there are things you can do yourself, you know. I talk an awful lot about being kind to yourself. So what I mean by that is, and for those male listeners probably find that a bit airy-fairy, I'll say, like, actually, just be a bit less hard on yourself, is that, you know, this is showing up against your will. You don't want to feel anxious. You want to go to that party with your friends, deep down, but you don't go because you don't want anxiety to show up. But then what happens is when you don't go, you get to about 10 o'clock on a Saturday night and you wish you were there, but anxiety kept you from going. So I start off by helping people to see that, you know, this is showing up against your will. What can I put in place to make this a little bit easier? And starting by being kind to yourself, what I mean by that is being less harsh with yourself. Talk to yourself more kindly. Look, this is showing up. I don't want this to be there. It is. How can we get to a place where it's not in the driver's seat? And obviously that's when we come into our, our, our coping strategies are almost what I would call like a wellness toolbox. If you think of a some sort of guy coming in to fix your your leaky sink, he has some sort of toolbox, doesn't he? He's different tools for the job. I think in life, when we struggle with mental health, others, anxiety, depression, OCD, whatever your problem is, we need to have tools to manage it. You know, because I've said all along, we can't just magically get rid of this. We wish we could, and I wish I could at times. But it's more, what can we do when it shows up, you know? So I suppose to answer your question, Steve, and I went a whole long way about it, but I would start off with normalizing the process that you're not at fault for feeling anxious. It's common, believe it or not, from a place that's trying to keep you safe. But then it's about asking the question and we can get into is what do we do when it's showing up too much? When it is interfering with socialising with friends, when it is interfering with going to school, when it is interfering with going to work, when it is interfering with you living your life. So that's when different interventions, different tools out of the toolbox can come out. Can you answer this one for me? So practically speaking, I'm a young person and I'm listening on my headphones right now and I'm in my room and I just feel like I'm sinking in anxiety. Can you chat through some coping strategies? And as best I could and I I tried to put myself in that situation. Um and I think appreciating first of all the aloneness of that situation and the bit where you feel you can't talk to anybody. Um, my first bit would be, and again, I talked about this earlier, is connection. Is actually, is there someone you can connect with? Because I can nearly guarantee you, you're not the only one feeling that way. Because what you have to remember, and I wrote a poem about this. I'm not a poet by trade, Stephen, but sometimes I will put pen to paper. And I wrote a poem called, Your Mind is Not Your Friend, But It's Not Your Enemy Either. And what I meant by that was there'd be no such thing as Here's the Thing podcast. There'd be no such thing as Liverpool Football Club. There'd be no such thing as your favourite fizzy drink, your favourite coffee shop if we didn't have this amazing creative mind. But that same mind can they say things like, you're not good enough. You're not going to amount to anything. If you go to that party tonight, everyone's going to look at you and you're going to be the odd one out. Your mind can say things like that. 
So it's about recognizing you have this amazing creative mind and it does some amazing things, but sometimes it can get you stuck, put you in a cul-de-sac. So for that person who's sitting in that room, I would sort of encourage the person to begin with who in their life, what trusted family member, friend, even someone, if they feel even someone they can connect with on, on social media, some trusted person who shares a bit of wisdom on this subject, can they connect with someone and feel less alone? And then I suppose it's about recognizing that over time this can get that instead of being this big overwhelming animal, that it's almost like the way I sort of see anxiety now, and that's where this person can get to. It's almost like if you can imagine driving your car and there's a toddler screaming in the passenger seat or sorry, screaming in the back for your attention. Of course you give it your attention and of course you listen to what it has to say, but then you focus on on driving. So it's almost acknowledge that anxiety is there, acknowledge that it's speaking to you, acknowledge it's trying to get your attention. But how do we get to a place where it's not keeping you in your room? So start with connection. Then as I say, and Stephen, I know you've been a big advocate of this in your sort of recent reels, is when you emotion is influenced by emotion. So how you feel is influenced by what you do. So sometimes even if it's a walk, even if it's hopefully you're with you're you're somewhere where you can get some fresh air as well. There's something about exercise which can, can help the brain work better, which can help minimize the symptoms of anxiety. I appreciate there are people saying there go. He's saying exercise. Is he kidding me? But you yourself are sitting here, I myself, people in this room I'm sure have seen you feel better after doing physical activity, you feel better after doing some sort of exercise. So I don't want to try and minimize what that example is, because it's a really great example of I would imagine many people up and down the country are feeling that way. But it's what small steps can we put in place to at least get that person out of the room. You know, because the longer they're in that room, their life's getting smaller. They're feeling more isolated, probably starting to begin to feel depressed. But reaching out, you know what, Stephen, you were probably there. I was there. I was that teenager in that room. So if you're listening, you can turn your life around. Start small, but you can get to a place where anxiety isn't on the driving seat. Can, you, can I give, give you a scenario? I'm just going to use Handy as an example and me. So say I come to you, for all the friends out there who are the friend of somebody who's struggling with anxiety, if I come to you and I say, Paul, mate, can you help me? I mean, Handy won't come out of the house. In his room, flat out. He will not come out for a coffee and not go to Mickey D's with me and not go to the match. He won't listen to anyone, but he listens to me. Can you help me the next time? Can you advise me the next time I get five minutes over WhatsApp? What can I say to him? What can I say? Almost be the Paul McCarroll to him. I'm almost his little therapist. He won't talk to anyone else, but I've got a chance. Can you tell me what I can say to him? And I think, and I like where you're going with that, and if that maybe you are that trusted friend who has that opportunity to <clears throat> to make a difference, to maybe help be the catalyst in their own recovery journey. And, and, and it could be beginning with just sitting with the person and letting them, maybe for the first time, sharing to you how they feel getting that stuff off of their chest and what they may begin to see is that actually they feel less alone and maybe you might come in and say actually you know what I'm feeling that way about those GCSEs that are coming up I'm feeling that way about that job interview I'm feeling that way about my future I'm feeling a bit uncertain and suddenly this thing which is huge becomes that bit more manageable doesn't go away but it comes that bit more manageable. And then it's about what small step can I maybe do to help this person next? And it could be, if this person hasn't been out of their room in a long time, 
it's a big step to say, right, let's go to the local football match. But it could be, I'm going to begin by actually coming and play the PlayStation with you. And then next time, how about we try actually maybe watching the football or the sticker or whatever you're into. And then slowly over time, that can take time. But you're, what you're trying to do, I think, with any person or individual is A, validate how they're feeling. They're okay to be feeling that way. They're not abnormal, as we would often say in the mental health world. It's okay not to be okay. But then helping people to see that there is a way out of this. There is a way that anxiety does not have to keep you in your room. Let, let me ask you a personal question. I think it's a simple question, but it's a big deal for me. So, even having your own mental health podcast, even speaking out as I have done to the media, I've been on TV once, I almost feel like I'm famous for sharing. I'm famous for sharing my anxiety story. Why do I, like, why is a 39 year old day still get scared to tell people why, when, and why I'm anxious? Like, I, I, you know, we've done, like, I don't know many podcasts we've done, and I've just gone almost to the, the role model of someone who will reach out to somebody, will text me at Paul, text me at Handy, text me at Karen. But I, I'm sitting here in February 2024, and I'm going, I still get terrified when an anxiety wave comes over me. I almost want to graduate from it and then tell Handy how, mate, last Monday I had a really bad day, rather than actually go, the wave is breaking over me right now, bro. Like, why Why do I still get scared? And I think part of, as I've sort of tried to sprinkle a little bit through the, this episode, is that part of anxiety is healthy, functional, and normal. You know, you need anxiety to survive sometimes. Anxiety has come from a place where if it wasn't there, if you were in a difficult situation, like you were on your night out and these shady characters were coming towards you, or even back in the day when, you know, maybe what there was, a saber-toothed tiger running around the plains and you need to get offside. Anxiety's number one job is to keep you on this planet, to keep you safe. It, your brain doesn't really worry too much about contentment, happiness. It wants to keep you safe. But the problem with anxiety, as a 39-year-old man, Stephen, probably even for you, it's showing up in places you don't want it to. Showing up like maybe before you go to the football. Showing up before you go on a podcast. But part of it is normalising the process. I, I mentioned obviously before coming on that I do a bit, bit of educational work as well in the hospital where ironically I, I was once a patient. And every single time before delivering a course, I feel anxious. Right? And before in previous years, that would have overwhelmed me. I wouldn't have knew how to deal with that. But that anxiety helps me to do well, to give the best of myself. It sort of prompts me to ask, you know what, I'm going to make sure I know this material. I'm going to make sure that I give of my best. And I would say, Stephen, that your anxiety at times is showing up. It helps you. It helps you do a good podcast. I would nearly say there's people even sitting in this room. I know when I came in, I felt anxious. And the reason I felt anxious was partly... Because I want to do this well. And partly because I didn't want to make an ass of it either. You know? So I suppose I try and reframe anxiety a wee bit instead of... Because it shows up for most people I see that that teenager in the room, that great example you shared, as this enemy. This is something I need to get rid of. But the question is I have for your listeners, what happens if it doesn't have to be the enemy? What happens if, a bit like if we're using this school analogy, that's a bit like the kid going to school, instead of having this overwhelming backpack, have this wee small wee bag on their back. No, it's there. They can feel it. But it's not dictating whether they go to school or not. It's not dictating whether they study for the exam. It's not dictating whether they meet their friends. Because, in my opinion, 20 years of trying to get rid of it, and it still shows up, it's maybe about, maybe you don't need to get rid of it. Maybe we need to learn... To manage it in a more healthy way. Mate, I've only got a couple more questions for you. Um, I do want to say, as I've said before, I'm not going to do the typical Northern Ireland person thing Maybe. and text you after what I've thought. I'm going to tell you now on the podcast, genuinely speaking, your reels make my life better. And I want to thank you for that. And I, and I think, given the amount of followers you have on your page, 
I I feel like when I watch a reel of yours, like the other day, I'm killing myself exercising at the minute, and I'm really enjoying it. And I I read your when you're talking about emotion and emotions, and I just felt so affirmed, and I felt it made my life better. So I just want to thank you for that. A couple more questions. Let me get inside your head. How do you, like how do you get a how do you get your inspiration for what the post? What what thought comes into your head that it would have were you just thinking it's January and everybody's trying to trying to see if they can walk or run or hop five K, so that would be a good like like how how do you know what to post? I think it's it's evolved over time and actually as I'm sure you guys know it's that real general sometimes you can come up with an idea and you execute it straight away. There's other times I can be walking around the log shore for half an hour trying to get a one minute piece of content. But generally it becomes it comes quite organically. And it's always coming from a place of what could I share which could be useful. And sometimes it's not. I'm not gonna sit here, Steve, and say, Yeah, all my content's amazing. Sure at times people are like, Oh here he here here he is again. You know, but actually in the back of my head, and I vividly remember, sometimes, I'm sure it's the same maybe when you do a podcast, sometimes I don't feel like doing it. I don't feel like doing a read. I don't feel like writing a blog. But in the back of my mind, it's more like, well, could I potentially help someone? And that nearly is the propeller that makes me do it. So in terms of inspiration, it's generally, I suppose, where I'm at in a given day. Like if maybe I've been working in the hospital and... As you know, the sort of light, the night is getting, our days are getting a wee bit longer. Maybe you're getting a half, four, quarter to five. And if I can maybe get a wee bit of fresh air at some point during the day, I feel better for it. So I remember even that one you mentioned, hearing that years ago, that emotion is influenced by motion. You know, and how you remember that is you take off the E and you're left with motion. And then I put that into like, okay, well, how you feel is influenced by what you do. And, um, so generally, it's quite organic. It's sort of, at times, it's not even really thought out. But there's other times, yes, I go down like, actually, you know, today what I'm going to talk about is intrusive thoughts. Today what I'm going to talk about is exercise. Today I'm going to talk about that person who's struggling, maybe it's exam season. There's a post I did, which has been very popular. I've reposted it many times about sort of Sunday evening anxiety. Because there's this thing I think it's not talked about a lot. I see it even as a parent to a four-year-old son. And even just, you're thinking of your week ahead on a Sunday. And it's like, oh, I've got this to do, I've got that to do. And even if you're someone who maybe doesn't have a lot to do. Maybe you're someone who doesn't have work or kids or whatever. But there could be a wee bit of anxiety about the week ahead. And I sort of share that anxiety. I generally try and share what's on the mind. And then generally try and share practical wee tips to manage this stuff because I think we're getting into a culture nowadays where like I like to blog but it doesn't get much traction because people's attention span I think really has minimized they want that 30 second one minute magic bullet which is going to help so I hope I answer your question Stephen keep, I want keep doing what you're doing bro I never told you I was going to do this Paul but just to finish I'm going to like fire I'm going to have a wee quick fire question go ahead um, so let's say I'm going to give you like 30 seconds on each one I'm just going to give you a statement and I would like you to respond to him so first one is I really struggle with self care what you say to me self care is such an important thing but I think contextually culturally self care is seen as a selfish thing here but I always remember it if you ever been on a plane, generally the, the steward will say, put your own oxygen mask first before helping others. And I, I've always, I've thought about that sense of, well, that's quite hard to do because if you have a young kid there, or an elderly parent, you want to help them first. The truth is you can't pour from an empty cup. If you want to look after anybody else or you want to look after your mental health, you have to start by trying to care for you. And what helped, in my opinion, I used to see self-care as I have to go to the fancy resort but go for a spa day now that can be part of self-care but for me what really self-care is actually you know what have I had something to eat today have I checked in with someone have I actually went for a walk 
What are the everyday essential things I need to do to keep myself well? Keep it simple. But try and... Okay, next statement. I think I need to go to therapy or counselling, but I'm terrified. How would you respond to that? Again, first of all, normalising that because people find it hard to talk about their emotions. They find it hard to talk about their mental health because there's still a bit of stigma. Hopefully stigma is again the place where it's not as frequent as it was, but also remembering that there can be huge positives that can come out of therapy. By sharing what you're struggling with, by sharing, you know, your vulnerabilities. And and the role of a good counselor, the role of a good therapist isn't to give you give you the answers, it's to help you find your own answers. So for me, therapy can be a real game changer for someone. It's not for everybody, but it can really help you forward with your, your mental health. Okay, next statement. I'm starting to enforce some boundaries, in particular saying no, but I'm finding it really difficult. What would you say? I think that, again, it's, I suppose, if you're finding it difficult to say say no, I think that's partly, could could be even like an assertive, assertiveness thing where maybe you're someone who, I know when I think of my own life, I'm someone that likes just part of my personality, even outside of mental health, I like to help people out. And if Stephen, knowing you, remember you even in your, working in your coffee shop and <clears throat> you're a helpful sort of guy, you want to see people, you want to see people stuck. When you don't say no, it can lead to burnout. You know? So, having boundaries in place, I don't see it as a bad thing. I see it as a healthy thing. It can be difficult for people to put boundaries in place, especially if you are of a supportive mentality. But it's almost recognising, well, in the long term, almost like in the long term, the short term might be difficult, but what's it going to be like when I have boundaries in place? And, and, and also remember you can't cut, like, say, family members or, you know, maybe people in your work setting. You can't just cut people out of your life, you know, but you can minimize who you spend contact with, you know, and you can, if people aren't accepting of you saying no about certain things, do you really want to be in their company is, is what I would say as well. And the last one was said to me directly in 2024. Um, somebody said, I'll give you the direct quote, bro, it's all right for you. But I can't talk to my mates about my mental health. What would you say to that? Someone said that to me in the last couple of weeks. I would probably believe them in terms of where they're at. They feel that maybe the particular group they have, particular group of friends they maybe socialise with, it feels like they have all their ducks in a row. feels like they have no problems. But for all you know, they could be like the duck, as you see the duck underwater, that up close there's they're putting the big persona on but maybe they're struggling and I suppose it's about recognizing that it's trying to find a community that you can share how you're feeling there are people out there who won't understand you there are people who will just say get your act together in our sort of language wise up you know and sometimes they're coming from a well-intentioned healthy sort of place but maybe what they're saying isn't so helpful. So it's about finding people, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a page like mine, whether it's a book in your local bookstore, whether it's a support group, finding people you can connect with and be authentic and be yourself because we're all sitting here, and I know Stephen especially, is that you're being open about who you are. You're being open about your struggles. And I don't see that as weak. You know, I've heard, I've had to sort of, Flip on your question, people would say, I've heard it said, oh, you're weak, you know, but actually the people of mental health are the strongest people I ever know because they go about with this burden day in, day out, and they still try and do meaningful things, so. Bro, I just want to say a massive thank you to you. I want to quote one of my other favourite podcasts. I'm sure he listens every week, Peter Crouch, to this uh, podcast, but... um. I listen to you talk about OCD and anxiety and the phrase that they always say is back stronger. And I, and I, that's the, that's the vibe I've got from chatting to you for an hour here. I just feel like you're back stronger from the hell and back that you've been through and you make me feel stronger and the other people in this room have recorded it. So I'm full of cliches tonight, Paul, but 
keep on keeping on because it's just gold what you have to say and I want to say a massive thank you for you for coming down here in the my dad's flat and um, being on our podcast and I just want to close by saying if you are struggling with anything that we've discussed tonight OCD or anxiety please talk to somebody there are trusted good people out there what you're going through is not the end storms pass and there is life after what you're going through that will not always be this way so thanks for listening to February's edition of Here's the Thing